This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we are continuing our journey through the Gospel of John, looking at the testimony of John the Baptist as he ratifies the identity and ministry of Christ. Yeah, we're going to finish out the chapter, see how long this conversation takes us. But it seems like a good little chunk, and it seems to fit well off of uh, Josh Bosset's teaching from last episode, which was pretty darn good, if I do say so myself. Brent, how do you feel about that? Uh, it was amazing. <laughs> no so surprise. True. So true. Uh, Got to give him some more assignments for this John study here. But yeah, I think there's a lot of stuff that he was teaching about in there and said that uh, I think, and again, no surprise, feeds into actually a lot of the stuff that Josh was talking about really brings some clarity to some of these kind of content motifs that I've seen and noticed in John things like we're going to see again, like right after this story, it's almost like John's juxtaposing Nicodemus and John the Baptist in a sense. And I think he's going to do it later when you have Nicodemus and the woman at the well here in the next episode. But you you get Nicodemus and the person kind of um, stuck in the religious paradigm and the religious practice of their day, not necessarily right or wrong, but you're kind of stuck. And listening to John talk about heavenly things and earthly things like you have to be born a bit you have to you have to be able to see things from a new paradigm you have to be able to you can't see the kingdom if you're stuck in just this world and just the earthly things and just earthly logic if you haven't tasted of the divine if you haven't seen if you haven't been born again and born anew if you don't see things through the mission and the lens of god then And that has really just brought some, that goes kind of all throughout John. And when, when Josh said that, it just brought a lot of like, oh, what a beautiful callback to that chapter. Whenever we encounter that, where where we're seeing that and and guess, I guess we can even trace it back to chapter one, where John says, you know, men love darkness, um, but into that darkness came the light of the world and the the darkness hadn't overcome it. So I just really appreciate that. It was it was really good. So we'll we'll try to um, bounce off of that today, if you will, as we talk. But let's see, Brent. We're going to look at that last part. So you know, end of John, somewhere around verse twenty-two. How about you start? And I'm just going to interrupt you about every half sentence today. So we'll just prepare ourselves for that. No doubt. No doubt. All right. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, okay, John so was also there we oh, go. Oh, right, there right, we go. Here you, we go. <laughs> you tried to pause, and I wasn't quite on it quite quite quickly enough. Um, but Judean countryside. So, uh, Brent, you've gone to you've gone to Israel with me multiple times, and you've done some of the prep study and videos. What is the Judean countryside? Can you remember being there? Tell me, like geographically, where we're talking about and what it's like. Well, countryside. Are we are we talking more of the desert, or yeah. are we? Yep. And kind of into the Shafela. Yeah. So we have like, man, do we have that map from like session two? Could we dig that up and like put it on the, uh, in our show notes? Could we do that, Brent? Well, I believe it'd be session three, but absolutely. I don't know. Would it be session? Uh, it might be. I think the Shafela was uh, beginning of session two. Oh, Shafela. The study of that. the conquest and oh, that the regions and talking about the crossroads of the mm-hmm. earth. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so you have these different regions. You have the coastal plain and then you had the Judah mountains um, where most of God's people will often settle. It's a little bit nicer part. The pagan nations awfully, uh, often being over on the coastal region, and the Shephelah being this region in between where the Judah Mountains 
and the and the coastal plains kind of meet in Shefela. But then we also have the um, Judean countryside before you get to the Rift Valley. Now, what sits in the bottom of the Rift Valley, Brent? Rift Valley. That's going to be the the Dead Sea, I guess. Yeah, and the and there's is, a big river that the, flows is right at the th- base of it. Yeah, is that what you mean? Yeah, and and the river flows right through the uh, bottom of the Rift Valley, being the Jordan River, oh, right? I I see what you mean. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so the, you, the river. So you have these five zones where you have coastal plain, Shafela, Judah Mountains, Judean Wilderness, and then the Rift Valley. So the Judean Wilderness falls in this place between, say, the Judah Mountains, and you can even think of something like Jerusalem in this case. So you have the Jerusalem, the Judah Mountains, the the cities, and you go you go further east and you have the Jordan River. And in between those sits this region called the Judean Wilderness. And it is very it's like the it's like the the gateway into the desert that we would think of when we think of like the desert of the of the Paran or the desert of Zin or those deserts where Israelites wandered. The, the Judean wilderness is like the gateway into uh, that desert region. So it's full of wadis. It's full of, but but it is very much a, a desert region. So they're going out to the Judean wilderness towards the Jordan River, obviously, where these this baptizing is going to take place. And that just kind of gives you a, a sense geographically, because um, if they're in the Judean wilderness, they are likely not up north in the Galilee. It's a completely different region. They're, they're down more south where I think you even said the Dead Sea at one point, which would be totally accurate. Places like Qumran. Um, uh, we know that John is baptizing there. It's where Jesus will be baptized all the way down south by the Dead Sea, just maybe less than three miles away from the ruins of Qumran. And um, so, yeah, that's that's our geographical setting. So there you go. Go ahead. Yeah, I wasn't quite sure what countryside meant, if that was more of a wilderness sort of term or if it was a broader thing. Yeah, depending on tra- – was that the new NIV that called it wilderness as well? Uh, new NIV calls it countryside. Oh, countryside. NIT calls it territory, oh, okay. which isn't necessarily more helpful. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did my old NIV call it? They called it the countryside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I think my brain automatically said wilderness, which would be the same – word for desert but countryside i don't know i'd need another i would need a better word scholar on that one to talk about the relationship between those two words good question yeah moving on slightly it says now john was also baptizing at anon near salim and the net has a huge footnote Ooh, tell me more all of the well it's just it's just exploring the different possible options on where those things could be located so yes there's huge debate about that and and a ton of debate about translation as well where is john baptizing where are these things taking place i actually dug out my notes from the trip brent because i wanted to get some of these things right my ray my teacher was adamant that the three places he sees john the baptist baptizing at three places and he's adamant that the three places where john is baptizing are some of the three major stories that we see elijah um, because who is John, despite what we said a few episodes ago when he responds to the Sadducees, who is it that Jesus says John is kind of, what's the part that John is playing, Brent? He's the Elijah part. He's the Elijah part. And so uh, he obviously has his, his Elijah costume. We're told that John looks physically like Elijah in the way that he eats, in the way that he dresses, in his mannerisms, in his personality. But the but also the the places that he baptizes when he's at the Jordan, why does he choose those locations? Ray said it's because those are the locations where Elijah did his ministry and where those stories happened. And so 
We're told that John was baptizing at Bethany beyond the Jordan. That is where Elijah would have been fed by the ravens. There's huge debate about where Bethany beyond the Jordan is and, and whether or not that's even translated correctly. Um, but that's what that, that's what Ray's opinion was, and I, I, I agree. And then and then here in this in this passage, Anon near Salim, well, that's where the story of Elijah, when he takes his cloak and uh, right before he's taken up into heaven by chariots of fire, he puts his cloak on the water and and parts the and they cross the Jordan by putting the cloak on the water there. So these are the points where John is baptizing. These are major story points for the story of Elijah. So uh, that gives some fun context there as well. But I, I, I would not doubt at all that the NAT has a huge footnote there because boy, oh boy, do scholars have a heyday with uh, the details on this one. It's not the largest footnote in this little section, and we'll get to that later. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> uh, okay, so now John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. Um, and I would say clearly before he was put in prison. <laughs> Correct. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. Now, does your uh, translations that you might be working with have any footnotes there on uh, when it says a certain Jew? Mm -hmm. What's it say? Uh, Well, the NIV does not, but the NET does, and it's talking about whether it's referring to an individual or if it's referring to Jewish authorities, whether it's referring to a a Judean, because it is Edui or whatever. Yep. and yeah, it just goes into all of those possibilities. Yes. And my old NIV has a footnote that speaks to the fact that a lot of manuscripts make it plural. So is it a certain Jew? Is it certain Jews and a group of people? And then I love that the NET went into some of those other, and we have dealt with the whole Idui discussion, right, Brent? In earlier episodes, we've talked about when John uses the term Jew or Jews, Usually, we really have to do some extra work there to realize that John's not just talking about just Jewish people. He's talking about a particular subset of of the Jewish world and a Jewish paradigm. And I prefer usually to read that phrase as Judean. I think the translation Jew is kind of loaded with supersessionism and, and anti-Semitism. We just love to just be like, and that's what Jews thought. And yet, when you read things like the way Luke uses the term when John uses the term, he, he clearly can't be saying just Jews in general because there are other Jews that are going to respond completely differently. So it appears that he's using the term with, in more of a Judean sense. An argument arose between, say, John and his disciples and certain Judeans, or, or at the very least, a certain Judean, which you would expect because Sadducees and Pharisees, for that matter, see baptism differently than the Essenes did. And so you would expect a uh, an argument, a debate over how you engage the work of baptism and what's being accomplished. But have we have we dealt with that enough, you think, Brent, in that conversation? Um, we've definitely talked about it before. Okay. Well, then I'm satisfied if you are. The, the, uh, the NET retained Jew because they, um, because of the ceremonial washing thing, they considered a religious argument, um, which doesn't necessarily preclude the idea of i mean we've talked about the very different religious practices of of people in the region of judea versus galilee so i don't know that that's necessarily a helpful distinction but not at all that's why they retain jew yeah and especially if um 
if John's coming from a more Essene background, it's not that the Essenes are more Galilean. They're not Northern, but some of their characteristics and the way they approach Scripture and practice is far more Galilean-like. There's this huge divide between the northern Judaism of the Galilee and the southern Judaism of Judea. And so Judean Judaism is radically different. And Essenes, well, again, I'm not saying they are Galilean by any stretch of the imagination, but they have more characteristics that are at odds with Judean uh, practice, just like like the Galileans would. So this would not surprise us at all to read this verse here in in the least. And we don't know what the argument is, but the theory that the NET puts forth, or one of the theories at least, that I found most interesting was uh, the ceremonial washing is a callback to the wedding at Cana, where Jesus took the the water in the pots that were for ceremonial washing and turned those into wine. And so the idea is the argument was, Uh, Is Jesus saying that ceremonial washing isn't important anymore? Is he throwing that whole thing out? Is he throwing out our entire religious practice? And so fascinating. Is this the largest note that you were referencing? That that is. It's huge. (laughs) Man. Oh, man. I'm going to have to dig into that and look at that myself. All kinds of juicy stuff there, which again, man, you... Man, that's going to keep me up at night. Thanks a lot, Brent Billings. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I mean... He's at a wedding in Cana, which is in the northern Galilean region, which is going to be more influenced by what sect of thinking? By the the Pharisees. Yeah, Pharisees or zealots, that that Hasidim um, perspective and worldview. And we've talked before about how these two different Jewish views on baptism, one being ritual, ceremonial, washing, and cleansing, versus the Essene baptism, which was more of an immersion and a... Uh, a baptism of repentance, maybe not necessarily in the Christian sense, but they saw it, they they practiced it differently, and they saw it with slightly different theological nuances. And so, man, I can just really see that argument taking place. What a fantastic little suggestion of them saying, "Hey, are you are you trying to make a knock on how Pharisees?" And man, now I got to go back and consider so many things, Brent. <laughs> so interesting. Is Jesus offering? A critique on ceremonial ritual mikvah. Oh, I find that so fascinating. Huh. Okay. Little feather in my thought cap. Okay. (laughs) They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Ugh. Competition. Territorial stuff. Here was John the Baptist. He had the corner on the market on baptizing people out in the middle of the desert. And now there's somebody else doing the same thing. Now, as we kind of walk through this whole passage, I'm going to toy with the idea, but I'm not going to rely on the idea that I've put forth before, because I think John the Baptist uh, was a pretty uh, unique person in Jesus's life. Who do I suggest that John the Baptist is, Brent? Uh, Rabbi to Jesus. Absolutely. And that wasn't my idea. That was suggested to me by Ray on some level. He made that suggestion at some point in my studies with him. And I've just, man, when I read these stories, I find it so interesting that when whatever John is doing, we see Jesus coming along and doing it. No matter what John, now I'm not going to rely on that crazy theory. I don't want you to have to rely on that crazy theory. I'm not telling you you have to agree with me. It's very, very possible that John and Jesus are just good old cousins, ministry colleagues, buds, and they're out doing similar work. And you know, and Jesus's ministry starts to take off and grow. And boy, if this doesn't ring some of our 
you know, bells of those of us that have been in vocational ministry. Oh, here's somebody else planting a church right down the street, doing a little bit better than we are, and everybody's getting all worked up. But imagine again if perhaps John is Jesus's teacher. Formal, informal, I don't care how you see it, but what if what if John has a little bit more of a rabbinical presence? If that's true, then Jesus is doing exactly what we would expect. What is John doing? He's baptizing. What is Jesus going to do? He's going to go out and he's going to baptize with his disciples. What is John's message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As soon as John gets beheaded, what are we told Jesus does? He starts preaching a message. What is his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Like Jesus is being very, very, very disciple-esque. I'm not saying that in this moment he is John's disciple, but I sure hear echoes of he spent time with John, and they had a unique relationship, and it's what everybody keeps trying to figure out here because as Jesus' ministry becomes, you know, planted and successful, people are going, hey, wait a minute, who's who's who here, and who's, who's rabbi, and who's better, and who's greater? And this is what John's going to speak to here in the next few verses, whether it's coming from that relationship of rabbi-disciple or whether it's simply coming from colleague, but it, it sure adds color if uh, what Ray— seemed to suggest to me was was right, and I, I sure love the idea myself. But Brent, you can either add some color or keep on reading. <laughs> no, I think that's a great, great thought. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him, and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. All right. A lot to unpack there in that little paragraph. But John comes along, and John John deals with this sense of like, hey, what's going on here? He's, he's starting to baptize more people. And John says, listen, you can only... I know at Impact, we would, we just recently got back from an all-staff conference, Brent, where we talked all about our vision, reminded ourselves of these things. We would say at Impact, who is it that bears the fruit, Brent? Who bears the fruit? Yeah. The, well, is this an analogy? The branches? The ministers? The students? Who's the one responsible for actually bearing the fruit? Oh, well, God is. Absolutely. There you go. You're making this far too difficult. Just just God's <laughs> responsible for bearing the fruit, right? I, I, I don't, I'm not responsible for bearing the fruit, John 15. We haven't gotten there yet, but you get the idea. I'm not responsible for bearing the fruit. I, and here's John the Baptist telling these disciples, listen, what God does with our lives, what God does with our ministries, what God does with the things that we, in our partnership with him, a person can only receive what's given to him from above. What what happens in our ministry and what God does with it is up to God alone. So John has this, and and I think in our show notes, Brent, I've I've put in there that I, I did a, a YouTube video, it was probably quite a while ago, maybe over a year, two years ago, um, where I talked about imposter syndrome. And just, it had nothing to do with John, but it was a personal reflection. It was a thought of the day about some things I had been experiencing and just a it was a real struggle for me and you can link that video uh, in our show notes and people can kind of watch that um cuz cuz I found it helpful but what I see here in John is so much more maturity than I have or have experienced to this point John ha- John doesn't struggle with this imposter syndrome John knows exactly who he is and who he's not John knows the part he's here to play and the part he's not here to play 
John is ready to accept what God wants to do in him and what God doesn't want to do in him. And I just find that so um, instructive and admirable here in this passage where John says, hey, I don't have control over what God does. A person can only receive what comes what comes from above. I don't know what God's doing. I don't know what God is going to do, and I don't know what God wants to do, but I don't have any control of that. All I can do is receive. I'm just here to receive. I can't do anything more than that. And then he uses this analogy of the bride. How, how did the new NIV put it? The old NIV says, the friend who attends the bridegroom. What, is, what does the new NIV say? The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him. Yeah, and that is a, a, a reference to the wedding. And it's kind of it's 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 interesting to talk about. I'll try to do this in a way that's not disturbing or or but but to describe the culture, the bridegroom comes to the wedding, and the ceremony uh, takes place. And at some point, the ceremony ends. The party is far from over. Like the party is just getting started. The party is going to last for days, maybe as long as even a week, um, where you're just feasting and celebrating together the families the wedding guests, all those kinds of things. This party is not just going to be a few hours. It's going to be a few days. But there's it, the party begins with the wedding ceremony, and the ceremony itself ends with the consummation of the wedding. So there's a place, there's a room, there's a spot where the couple goes to consummate uh, the wedding that, that, that first evening, the wedding night. And the bridegroom, according to the records that we have, we are told that the bridegroom kind of stands outside that door and he waits for, uh, and again, I'm not trying to be wacky or crude or weird, but he waits for the exclamation that the marriage has been consummated. The the attendant, the attendant waits outside, not the bridegroom. Not yes, yes, yes. Did I say the bridegroom? I meant to say the attendant. <laughs> yeah. The friend, the friend to the bridegroom, stands outside the door. He waits for that moment and then proclaims to the rest of the assembly that the wedding has been, that the marriage has been consummated. And it brings for huge celebration and everybody and the party just kind of kicks into a whole new gear. So that's the role that the friend of the bridegroom plays. I think we would call that person, what would we call that person in today's wedding context, Brent? Uh, the best man. The best man, exactly. Uh, John says, listen, I know who I am and I am not the Messiah. You heard me testify, he says here in this paragraph. You can bear testimony of the fact I've told everybody I, I know I'm not the bridegroom. I'm the friend that attends the bridegroom. I have a role to play in this wedding, but I am not the point of this wedding. And once this wedding takes off and the ceremony is over and the and the marriage is consummated, my role dissipates more and more and more and the party continues. And this is all about the bridegroom and his growing family. So John says, I know who I am. I was simply here to get the bridegroom to the wedding. I was simply here to get the wedding started, to be a part of the ceremony, and my job is here, and it's come, and I'm executing my role, but I also know that my role is limited. And so he ends this paragraph by saying, he must become greater, and I must become less. Again, for me, just a huge paragraph of John knowing his place uh, in a healthy way, a mature way. Uh, just a, a whole bunch of spiritual maturity that you see in John. Um, not, and I'm sure he wrestled as a human being with what we might call imposter syndrome today. But you just don't see that in the way he's executing um, his calling uh, from God in this. But anything you would add to that before we move on, Brent? No, I don't think so. Um, I will note here. So the 
the NIV has the footnote um, that after verse 30, the quotation ends, the translators end the quotation here. Um, same thing with the NET. And it's the same as what Josh and I talked about in the last episode. After verse 15, they end the quotation. Um, but some say that the quotation extends through, in that case, verse 21, and in this case, the end of the chapter, where it, it was Jesus continuing to talk. And in this case, it would be John the Baptist continuing to talk. But in both cases, the translators say, no, the quotation is over. And now this is John, the author, the apostle who is giving commentary about whatever just happened. So yes, and something to consider. Yeah, absolutely. Now the old NIV has the quotation continue through the end of the chapter. Um, Oh yeah. Which is often how I like to read it. I, I prefer to read it in the mouth of the characters rather than say like a narrator voice of the author, because the author is not going to have, and this might ruffle some feathers, but the author is not going, John is not going to have any hesitation or pause to put his commentary in the mouth of John the Baptist. Um, and I think we always are like, again, we're so wound up about historicity, historical accuracy, the fact that people said exactly what's written. I'm more wound up about inspiration. Whatever is in this scripture is what it is that's God breathed and what God wants to tell us. So whether John wants to put his words in the mouth of John the Baptist or not, I don't really care either way. I love to see them in the in the in the mouth of the character. I think, but the new NIV and the NET that gives me pause. I wonder if I should think it. I always assumed a more contextually appropriate way to assume that would be that the quotation continues. But if other translation uh, parties like them are changing that, maybe there's more evidence to the country. Who knows? I don't know. That's interesting, but great, great point. I think it's one of those things that's going to be debated uh, probably eternally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. All right, I wanted to read that whole paragraph so we could kind of hear it for what it is, and now I want to go kind of back up, and I want to kind of take this sentence by sentence or verse by verse. So, Brent, if you're if you're willing and able, let's go back to verse 31 there, and let's just take this kind of chunk by chunk and see what's what's being said here. And this is where I'm going to lean a lot on Joss's lesson from last episode, because I really liked what he did here about spirit and heavenly and earthly, uh, light and darkness, spirit and wind, and all those things, mystery versus um, whatever you want to call it, non-mystery, um, religion versus faith, uh, spirit and truth. Like I just love what he was saying about all that stuff. So uh, let's go back and, and take this piece by piece. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. So I'll, I'll, I'll just jump right in there and take this first sentence. The one that comes from above is above all. And I think our, our knee-jerk reaction, you hear that, the one who comes from above, we think of Jesus. And and I wouldn't disagree with that. I'm not saying that's not. But having jo- Josh's words from last episode ringing in my ears, 
I think I hear that, especially when you take the second part of that sentence. So there's somebody that comes from above. There's a type of person that comes from above. There's also the type of person that comes from the earth and belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. This is what Nicodemus was you know, rest, uh, dealing with, trying to overcome just four paragraphs earlier in John when Jesus tells Nicodemus, you know, I'm, I'm trying to speak to you about heavenly things, but I speak to you about earthly things and you don't understand. You're so stuck in this religious paradigm of what's true right here in this space. You can't get above it to see what God is doing. I'm trying to tell you what God is doing in the world, and and you can't rise above your practiced uh, religious paradigm, your practiced reality, your date, you're just like, this is impossible. What you're asking Jesus is impossible. And here John or John the Baptist or John the narrator circles back around to this idea and says the one that comes from above, well, they're, they're a part of a different conversation because the one that comes from the earth is of the earth and speaks about things, uh, speaks as one from the earth. Give us the next little part. The one who comes from heaven is above all. It almost feels like that whole thing is chiastic. Not like in a like in the in the means of a center, but it almost feels like a, an inverted parallel statement. Because he started with the same thing. The one who comes from above is above all, and he ends with one who comes from above with from heaven is above all. Feels very paralleled to me, but I digress. Go ahead. Yeah, and the NET throws out that some manuscripts don't actually have the is above all there, and it's a continuation of Verse 32, so it's the one who comes from heaven, testifies to what he has oh. seen and heard. Okay. But apparently the manuscript evidence is a little bit heavier to conclude it. But yeah, there's some debate as to how, how that whole little portion is structured too. So oh Man, what a fascinating little debated paragraph here. Uh, the one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Okay, so if you come from... Um, and, I, and I, I'm not trying to use this this language in like a new agey, that's not what I'm trying to do. So hear that before I say this. The one that comes from like an illuminated, somebody who, somebody who comes from above, who sees the things from a kingdom perspective, who has been born again, who can see the things that God is doing in the world, who, where, who, for whom hope and resurrection is second language. Ooh, I like that. That's that's where I'm going to go. Uh, for for whom hope and resurrection is second language. That person, what does the phrase say? Um, uh, but no one accepts his testimony. Because people that are stuck in uh, an of the earth, people that are from the earth and are of the earth and speak from the earth, people that have a very limited unillumined, darkened paradigm and perspective. They don't, they don't get it. They don't see it. This is what Nicodemus is wrestling with. This is what Jesus just did. This is the light and darkness motif that John's playing with. This is, but John is trying to invite people and then, and then it leads to this next verse. Go ahead and give us the next verse. Um, when you say second language, what do you mean? Meaning like, um, no, that's a good question. Meaning second, second language to me sounds more like I don't actually know this that well. This, oh, this is something no. I learned later. No, you mean, I, in a, you mean in a native language sense? Uh, I mean, I mean, yeah. I think our that's this wonderful little philosophical question you're asking me here. Um, I I mean to say, I think, um, I think Earth language. Boy, boy, we probably need to really finesse our our semantics here, don't we? I think to be of the Earth is our 
is is a human's native tongue. That's, that comes natural to us. That's what it is to be a beast. And yet what Jesus was inviting Nicodemus to do was to be born again, to see things from, to be awakened, to be illumined, to be to ha- to, to have a second language, one that's not necessarily our native language, but one I don't I don't I also don't mean one that we're I mean one that we're fluent in to be fluent in a second language. The person who is from above, well, well they they're very fluent in their native language might be, but they also see things. They have kind of risen above that darkened, this is all John's motif language we're using here between light and darkness. It feels very new agey when you put it in our context, but that's not at all what I'm intending to talk about here. But um, does that make sense, Brent? Yeah, I think so. Okay, so moving on. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. Okay, give us the Blue Letter Bible translation for the word certified. What is the word and what does it mean, Brent? Uh, So the word is sfragizo. Something like that. Yeah. Um, and it means to seal or to um, to order or mark, to prove, to confirm, to attest, ah. to authenticate. Ooh. I like those definitions as they got further and further down the list. Uh, read me those last two or three that you had there. To, to prove, to... Yeah, to prove, to confirm, or to authenticate. To prove, to confirm, or to authenticate. I love that. What is the uh, strong entry I'm, I'm there, condensing, by the way? I'm condensing the definition substantially. There are a lot of words here in total. Well, you can, can you link the, uh, the, the word study there to the show notes? Already done. Already done. Excellent. What's the Strong's entry there? What's the number? Uh, G4972. G4972. Here's your Strong's entry. People can look it up and, and spend all the time in the lexicon they want to spend. But I love this idea of certified, of proved true. So the one who accepts, let me read that again. The one who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. So there is this other way of, and this is why I call it second language, Brett. Because there's this other way, I think we all can relate to this. There's this, God invites us to see the world more through his lens, which for him is his native tongue. For us, it's like, oh man, but that's not, it is hard for me to, I think in session one, we talked about being people of the ears rather than people of the eyes, right, Brent? Was that session one? We talked about the desert, right? Being people of the ears and not people of the eyes. It's so much easier in our human nature to be people of eyes, to speak to speak this religious, earthly, finite, limited, darkened paradigm, that's that's our native tongue. Of course, we know that God sees everything through a much different lens, a much different paradigm, and he invites us to see things, to be born again, to use Josh's teaching, to, to enter into a whole new way of seeing the world, a whole new way of seeing what God's up to, the whole new way of seeing the kingdom of God, of entering into the kingdom of God, so I can th- see things throughout the simple realm of limited finite logic or a religious paradigm that keeps me boxed in, but to see, to step kind of above that and see what God is up to and doing. And then John says, the one who accepts this, I feel like a good phrase for this, what I'm talking about here would be the one who trusts the story. (laughs) See what we've done there? Gone all the way back to session one. Because of temptation, is to not see it through God's paradigm. The temptation is to not learn to speak a second language, to just live in fear. But we said the antidote of that, this is all the way back in episode one, Brent. We said the antidote to that was to be somebody who lives not in fear, but in trust. Because when we trust the story, and what John, I think, is saying here is that when you live in that trust, 
when you trust the story, when you trust God's paradigm, when you trust that uh, whether it's the goodness of creation or God's invitation to self-sacrificial love uh, versus self-preservation, whenever you step into this, whenever you choose to see it the way God has invited you to see it, you certify, you ratify, you prove true what God says is true. It's unbelievably difficult, and this was the moment that Jesus is inviting Nicodemus to. Nicodemus, you have to be born again. And if you will let yourself be born again, you will see that the kingdom of God is up to something that you think is crazy and impossible and just nuts. But if you will trust the story, you will see. And I think, spoiler alert, by the end of the Gospels, I think Nic- I think Nicodemus does, in fact, trust the story. He, lends, he leans in, he tastes, and he sees that, in fact, the kingdom of God is up to something, and it is good. And he's a different person at the end of the Gospel narrative than he is here at the beginning. But this is the same thing that John is talking about, whether it's John the Baptist or John the author. The one who comes from above, will they see things from above? The one that comes from the earth, will they only see things from the earth? And the one that comes from above, see things differently, and nobody else gets it. And yet the person who accepts this certifies that this whole conversation is true. So if we accept the invitation to trust the story, we will taste and see that, in fact, the kingdom of God is exactly— and what did John say he was doing? He was writing this whole gospel so that we would believe in the Son, which is where I think the next few verses go, right? Brent, how about we finish out the paragraph? For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. And the one thing that I left Josh's lesson with last episode that I continue to wrestle with today uh, was this conversation about um, the Son. Is the Son Jesus, or is the Son Israel as God's firstborn Son? I loved Josh's point with that. I wouldn't disagree with his immediate point of what Jesus is telling Nicodemus in that moment. I I don't disagree with Josh at all. I thought that was absolutely mind-bendingly brilliant. What I now have to wrestle with is, is John pulling the two together? If Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about Israel, Passover, Exodus, God's firstborn, is John also wink, wink, nudge, nudging Jesus as that same person? the son, the Israel's firstborn incarnate, or not? And if that, and if not, is that true for the entire gospel of John? What's being said here in this paragraph? So I'm, I'm still wrestling with this because I have a harder time at this paragraph going, well, what John is doing is talking about um, uh, Israel as firstborn. Although it does, I would pause and say, it does work on a lot of levels. So I'm just wrestling still today with how much of these, when when John uses the term son of God, how much are these two ideas speaking to each other? Um, is Josh just flat out crazy? Is it is it the whole truth? Is it half of the truth? Is there a more complex usage of the term? I'm still I'm still wrestling with that as I study John. Uh, after hearing Josh talk about John 3, so which is good. I, I want to be in that kind of headspace, and I hope others do too. What do you think, Brent? 
I like it. It definitely screw man. I, it definitely screws with your typical understanding of John three when when Josh said you know <laughs> that I think we could be talking here about Israel. I mean it 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 fits exegetical context perfectly because that is exactly what these references are pointing towards, and that's really even still now at the end of John three, what John the Baptist is even talking about. He's talking about God's people understanding what God's up to in the world and being a part of it. And if that's not Israel as God's firstborn and the invitation to God's people to be the people he's called them to be, I mean, I don't know what is, but the language definitely does seem to have a very Jesus-esque flair to it, but the son that God has sent into the world. That's, that, that tells us truth. I mean, that seems to be much more pointed at the person of Jesus than just the image of God's firstborn, but I don't know. There we go. What do you think? Tell us what you think, Brent. Give us an opinion. I think it's a great wrestling match. And I, <laughs> I love it. I've only been sitting with this for a few days, so I don't know that I can uh, can have a fully formed opinion yet. I love it. I love it. Well, I love the fact that when I read it now, I'm not just reading over it, because those are phrases that, man, you just read over so quickly when you've been raised in the church or you read the Bible all the time. You're like, yeah, son of God. Yeah, 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 yeah. And now I'm stopping and going, wait a minute. Okay, what is the who is the Son of God? What's being referenced? What What's being said? What's the point of this passage? And that, well, that's what we're supposed to do when we read the Bible. So two thumbs up for that. It's a great wrestling match. It's a good wrestling match. You're right. Good answer. Okay. Well, I think we're good for this episode. All right. I'm looking forward to the next one, too. I think we're going to have uh, L. Grover Fricks join us on the next episode. We're going to talk the woman at the well. So... Buckle up. Yep, we'll be back uh, for that soon. If you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Sullivan. I'm at EIBCB. And uh, yeah, we'll be back next week with John 4. So thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.